Well, good morning to you all. So glad to see each and every one of you this morning. And there's another thing I'm grateful for. I know that each and every one of you, like me, have lost a little sleep this morning, right? <laughs> you, you don't realize that if you don't know the joke, Pastor announced a few weeks back, um, we just had our second child, so I am losing sleep all the time. You just joined me last night, all right? Um, so uh, I have forgotten after these few weeks what uninterrupted sleep actually feels like. I'm sure I will see it again, but as of right now, I don't remember it. So you may have to bear with me this morning, all right? I'm setting the stage for some grace because um, my class on Wednesday night saw it firsthand, the uh, the the brain that doesn't have sleep sometimes tends to wander off a little bit, all right? And so I know you'll be gracious, you'll bear with me this morning because we're all in the boat together. But what an amazing day to be in church, to walk in this building. And uh, I posted on, on social media this week as I saw a shot at the front of our building. 13 years now, been here seeing Jesus change lives and he hasn't stopped yet. He's going to continue to be with us in these days to come. And so I'm so grateful you're here. We're in 1 Peter, so you can go ahead and begin turning there. 1 Peter chapter 4 is where we're going to pick up today. And we've been walking through this series on bloom. This incredible series about what the life looks like when you begin to bloom in your faith in Christ. And today we're going to talk a little bit about the way we think. It's really an interesting um, topic. And I, I kind of did, um, listen, I'm not some brain scholar, but I did some Googling this week. You ever been there? Like you want to learn a little bit about something? It's like, okay, let me look up and Google a little bit about intelligence, how we think, because I don't know about you, but as I started thinking about this idea of intelligence, I started to realize that I really had only one lens in which I viewed our intelligence. And that is the lens of academics. You see, um, for most of my life, now I have a doctorate. I have spent a lot of time in academics, but we all have spent time in academics, right? Going to school when we're young, hopefully getting to go to college when you graduate high school. Maybe that's not your journey today. That's okay. But if you got to go to college, maybe you pursued a master's degree. Maybe you ended up pursuing a doctorate. There's some in level in which we all have gone through academics to achieve something in our lives, the problem with academics, uh, as good as it is for us, is that it kind of narrows our focus about thinking into one way. Let me look at something, study it a whole lot, learn it through that book or that lecture or whatever mechanism we've been given to learn the topic right, and then at the end of it, what are we going to have? You can talk, it's, it's participatory, right? The test, right? The exam, the score, you're going to be graded. And maybe some of you, you're the A students in the room, right? You, you wanted that 4.0, you wanted the accolades, you wanted the scholarship for college, you wanted to be at the top of your class. How many of you are in that B, C category? Maybe some of you just wanted to get out of school and graduate high school. Maybe for some of you, GED was good enough and you went on to work in a career. I don't know what your journey with academics is, but I know this, at some point in your academic life, you probably felt as if you came up just a little short. Even if you were very educated in this room, you know what I'm talking about. That class, that professor, that teacher, that no matter what you did, that topic that you studied, no matter how hard you studied, perhaps you couldn't quite make the grade, right? You couldn't quite get that A. You couldn't quite live up to that standard. The reason is this is because as we think about our intelligence, what we've got to realize this morning is that God has gifted all of us in this room multiple ways in which we are smart. 
You ever heard of the term street smarts? <laughs> you can be the smartest person in the room, but be the dumbest person on the streets, right? Not have a clue about how real life works. That's what they mean by street smarts, being able to get around, do things in life. Perhaps for you, your career, you made a lot of money and it, it had nothing to do with your schooling. Perhaps it had to be good with your hands or handiwork. Maybe you learned a craft or a trade that brought you all kinds of success, and yet the academic world did not bring that for you. We're all gifted in multiple ways. We're all given all types of intelligence. And the good news for us today as we dive into 1 Peter is I'm going to show you today one other aspect of your thinking, your intelligence, the way in which you think about life. And you probably know where I'm going with this, but if you're truly to bloom as a person, you do not want to negate thinking like Christ, thinking like Jesus. You see, you can win all the awards in any type of intelligence that you value, but at the end of the day, the only one that matters is if you become to think more like Jesus than yourself. And today, 1 Peter chapter 4 is going to tell us that. So if you would, turn there in your Bibles and let's read that together today. It says this. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves in that same way of thinking. Your version may say attitude. We'll talk about it in a second. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you don't join in with them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him, Jesus, who is ready to judge both the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Let me emphasize that. Show hospitality without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's very grace, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that only God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We're not stopping there. Verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice. In so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or thief 
or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and of the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will, according to God's will, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. It's a lot of words there, a long passage. But today what I want to show you is Peter gives the early church scattered throughout Asia a great picture of what it means to bloom as we learn to think like Jesus. So let's pray together, and then I want to dive in just to a couple of points today. It's not going to be long. A couple great points about what all this text has to do with you thinking about Jesus. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you so much today for your word, for Peter's encouragement to the church, to us today, those of us who know you. For the sake of the gospel, God, we've come to know you. And God, I pray that today, we would not just value our human intelligence, whether it be our academics, whether it be our skills, whether it be our careers, how good we are as something or someone. But instead, God, we would begin to value the intelligence of Christ, of Jesus, and what it means to think like him. So would you help us today understand this as we study your word? In Jesus' name, amen. So it's a lot of text here, a lot of words, a lot we just went through. And I, I want to break it down for you because if you're like me, you can read all that. If, and if you're not careful, you can get lost in all the therefores. Because <laughs> what Peter basically is doing is building an argument. I, I love the old saying. I used to hear it growing up in church. I believe it to be true. In Scripture, when you see a therefore, the best thing you do if you're studying Scripture is ask, what's it there for? What's it there for? Why are we here? What is he saying? When he says, therefore, what he's doing is he's building an argument based on what was previously before. And so our passage today starts in chapter 4 with therefore. So you have to ask the question as you're reading it. If you're reading this on your own, I'm trying to teach you a principle. What did he say before that? What did he just say? Why is he saying therefore? And what did he say before that text that brings us to this point? And to give you a summary, although it was preached, just to give you a quick summary, in chapter 3 at the end there, he talks about Jesus' sufferings in the flesh, both the death and resurrection of Christ. And there's one great word that summarizes that we use in the church, and it's called the gospel. And at the end of chapter 3, he gives a picture of Jesus' work here on earth, a picture of the gospel, that Jesus came to earth to suffer Yes, do some miracles. Yes, have a ministry. But ultimately, if you look, he suffered. He suffered. He ultimately died because of that ministry. But then he showed power and resurrected and ultimately gives us life. And therefore, if we believe in him, we also one day will be resurrected. And so because of that good news, he talks in this passage, how are we to think as Christians? If we accept that gospel, and maybe for some of you today, that's not your deal. You don't accept that. Or maybe you aren't quite sure about the fact that Jesus is your Savior. That he did die and resurrect. That one day you will go to heaven if you believe him. Maybe that's not your deal. If it is, though, however, then you have to go to verse chapter 4 and ask, 
What's it there for? How are we to live according to the gospel? And he starts by saying, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. And I'm going to park on verse 1 for a second because this arm yourselves idea is a military term. It's a term in which when you're getting ready for battle, you have to put on something. All right, so in military, if you're getting ready for battle, you've got to be trained. You've got to have the right tools, the equipment, the weaponry, strategies, right? There's all these things we do in battle. And I know today in our current situation in our world, it's not too much fun to think about war right now. But the reality is, is that if you're called to war, you have to arm yourself. You have to prepare for that. And Christian In the scriptures, it shows us time and time again that if you're going to believe in Jesus, if you're going to walk into faith, you've got to arm yourselves because it's going to be a battle. Your battle may be spiritual, it might be physical, but there is going to be a battle and you must arm yourselves. Another way I like to describe it, and this will be a little more fun to think about, is preparation. So as we got the news we're going to have our second child, there was a lot to do to prepare. It's funny how different that is from the first time though, isn't it? Like the first child is, is getting ready to be born and her room is prim and proper and ready to go. We had everything lined up and in order and man, everybody gives you stuff. You got all this new stuff that you can mess with, right? Second child was born. Nah, none of that happens, right? Like <laughs> you may get a few things here or there, but, but the main way in which we prepared ourselves is we spent a day in the attic, Thank, thank goodness we were in the cool season, right, here in New Orleans. If it's the summertime in the attic, I would be dying. But fortunately, it was in the wintertime. So we spent a day in the attic, and we're literally up there dusting off things, trying to figure out if things still work. Did I leave batteries in something, and therefore they're corroded and messed that thing up? Like, you're, you're going through all these steps. Guess what? We're having a sun, so none of the girl clothes work, right? None of that's going to work for us. But we're spending all this time preparing for the birth of our son. And we may not have been as prepared as we were the first time when it comes to the stuff, but we were more prepared in our way of thinking and our strategies this time because we had already been through it, right? You've been there, parents? Like it's a little bit, the child's different, but it's a little bit different when you have your second one because some things that were strange and foreign all of a sudden, you've got strategies for. Like for me, even though I am a little tired, the going without sleep it's not near as bad as I felt like it was the first time for whatever reason. Like you feel like you can roll a little more. It just is different. When he cries, it's not as bad because I'm prepared. And what, G- what Peter is showing us about the way of Christ in this is that when we will focus on that type of preparation in our Christian walk, that type of understanding, instead of worrying about all the stuff, we'll focus our thinking and our training on becoming like Christ then when that spiritual child cries in the night, we're not reacting in the same ways. When the thing pops up that used to bother you, Christian, years from now, you should handle it a different way. As you learn to be more like Jesus, and he's going to give us all these examples, we ultimately are preparing ourselves to, to think like him, to respond like him. And conclusion, by the way, and I'll get there in a minute, we're going to bring more glory to God. People are going to see God more in this world because you're more prepared to handle the things the way Jesus would handle them. So let's talk about two ways. I told you it'd be quick. I didn't mean that would mean it would be um, quick as in time. I meant that would be simple as far as remembering, all right? So uh, two major things we're going to talk about that he really says, if you want to think like Jesus, you really got to get a handle on these things. The first one is this. 
you've got to get a handle on glorious suffering. What I've called glorious suffering. And this is ultimately that you're thinking you must not think like everyone else. So spoiler alert. If you think like everyone else around you does, especially those outside of the faith, and you see that your thinking is lined up, you are probably not thinking like Jesus. Spoiler alert. At the end of the day, and I speak as a self, um, self-help person, I need help in this. Like, I don't like sticking out. Do you? I like kind of looking like everybody else. I don't want to ruffle feathers. I want people to be happy when I encounter them. I want to be in the group. I don't want to be outside of the group. And yet everything about the way of Christ, if you look to Jesus' ministry, yes, he had followers. Yes, he had people come on board. But the majority of culture were either one of two ways. They were either just riding along as a bunch of fans, not really getting what it was all about, or they were the ones crucifying him. And at the end of the day, when you see what happens in the scene where he goes to the cross, the religious leaders brought him to the officials, the officials put him before the people, and those very same fans did what? Said crucify him. The ones that had been following said crucify him. Now, I'm not talking about the disciples. I'm talking about the crowds. So here's the deal. Jesus stuck out. He wasn't like everyone else. And you see this in the text. Let's go to this for a second. Look at verse 3. Peter reminds the church, Christians, he's not talking about the world. He's reminding you, if you believe in Christ, the time is past doing what the Gentiles do. Those that are outside of the faith is what he's talking about. So sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. What's he talking about there? The way in which the Roman Empire was, was going at that time, these were the popular activities. And let me just... Let me just make it clear, although you might say, well, yeah, absolutely, that's sin. This was the popular things to do. This was the thing that if you were going to make it in that culture, you had to be a part of this group. If you were going to be the top of the ruling class, you wanted to be in these parties. If you wanted to be someone that was someone in this culture, you had the money, the resource, the wealth, all this, you had to be a part of this. Because why do we know that? Well, look what he says in verse 4. With respect to this, They are surprised when you do not join in the same flood with them. They are going to be surprised. And because of that, they're going to malign you. They're going to make fun of you. You're going to be the one that sticks out like a sore thumb. You're going to be the one that is no fun. You're going to be the one that loses something socially because of the gospel, because of Jesus. Now, I I hate to bring that up, but the reality is you've got to realize this that we ultimately as Christians were called to be different. We have got to stick out. Some of the worst things about Christianity that have happened is because the church has remained silent. Because they've chosen to fit in with the crowd. Because we want to look like everyone else. And I speak that not in judgment. I speak that as someone who confesses the same problem. When I go out in culture, the last thing I want to do is tell somebody I'm a pastor. (laughs) You realize that? Like if I'm on a plane flying, and I hadn't done that much lately, but if I'm going somewhere, sometimes the last thing I want to hear is, what do you do for a living? Why? Because if I don't say I'm a pastor, if I don't have that discussion, then I can fit in. Then I can just be one of everybody else. I don't have to have the awkward discussion, or perhaps the look, or the way in which I'm treated. Like, 
I don't have to do all those things. But yet, is that the right way to feel? Like, y'all probably surprised I'm even confessing that for a moment, right? Like, oh, you're a pastor and you do that? Like, no, like, that's not the right way to handle the situation. I'm just confessing my sin nature. My sin nature is, I just want to fit in. I just want to be one of you, one of the everybody's. But because of my profession, a lot of times, I tend to stick out quicker. But guess what? The same challenge is for you. To say you're a Christian, right, at your workplace, perhaps in social circles, you're going to stick out, right? Especially nowadays, right, it's becoming less and less part of the norm. There's less and less cultural and social benefits for being a Christian. Now, let me just speak to those of you who would say, yes, our country is going downhill. Back in the day, there were plenty of people in the church that were not Christian. Oh, no, pastor. Why? Why do I know that? Why do I believe that? Well, because back in the day, there were social benefits for being in the church. If you were outside the church, you didn't get the connections. You didn't get the connections in the industries or the jobs. I'm not saying that they didn't, that everybody liked the church. I'm just saying there used to be in our country a lot more social standing if you were in a church. But it's becoming less and less a thing. And the reality is, is that that shouldn't be our, our discussion today on if we have social standing or not. The reality is, the question is this, for the purity of the sake of the gospel, are you going to stick out? In your job, in your workplace, with your family, if they don't believe, whatever social circles you run in, are you willing to say in front of those people, I'm a Christian? You see, culture, no matter what you want to think about it, culture and history shows they will never accept Christianity and Christian values. We will always fight against it. Now, what you see throughout history is there's waves, right? So the Roman Empire accepts Christian as the nation's religion, right? And that started. And then there's waves, right? So now it's not as much a part of, it's Rome, obviously, but Italy as a whole, right? It goes down. America, we may think of the past as, man, it was, it was man, everybody loved Christianity, and now it seems like it's on the trend down. Guess what? We'll always fight these waves, but culture will never accept Christianity. Scripture tells us that. God's Word tells us that. They will malign you because of your faith. So the promise before us is that we ultimately have to be unique, and as that uniqueness comes... There will be suffering. But let me just pause for a second and tell you why you want to be unique. Why you want to be different. And you may not be in this crowd, but I love things that are unique. Things that happen for the first time. And it applies to all kinds of things. So let me give you a fun one. I am an Alabama graduate, an Alabama fan, right? And so I personally love my football team. But what I know to be true is this, whenever the same game at the national championship happens pretty much every year, all of a sudden, the sport, to most people except Alabama fans, becomes a little more boring, right? Like, how many of you want to see Alabama-Georgia play again in the national championship? Probably not many unless you're an Alabama or Georgia fan, right? What happens is, as it happens over and over, the sport loses some of its uniqueness. But when an underdog rises up, it makes the national championship. All of a sudden, the TV viewing show it. It's all of a sudden more of a thing. Think about movies for a second. When something truly is unique for the first time and not some, and we have less of this than ever before. Like how many matrices do we need? 
right? Like, it was unique. That first one had something unique about it, but now there's been four of them. It's like, come on. Marvel movies and superhero movies, and as fun as those might be, you can say that those are fun. I'll enjoy them. It's not that they are not, they're not bad things, but how much more special is the movie that comes out that blows your mind? It's first of its kind. The unique thing, and it applies in art, it applies in sports, it applies as a business, a startup, grows from the ground up, and all of a sudden becomes something special. You can name it time and time again. We as people are wired to love unique things. And Christianity is at its best when we are unique. You see it when Christianity, whatever denomination, whatever uh, branch of Christianity you want to look at, the more it becomes like the rest of the world, the less unique it is and the less valuable it is. Jesus was valuable. The faith is valuable when you stick out, when you're different. When people see that because of you are the way you are, there's something beneficial about that. And the more we hide it, the less unique it is. The more we try to be like them, the less unique it is. Apple products, Apple company used to have a saying, think different. And today what I'm challenging you is not to go buy an Apple product, but to think different, to think like Jesus, to become more like him. So what does that mean? Well, it's not that I'm trying to heap judgment on you today and say, well, your entire life has to shift. But you have to constantly, if you want to think like Jesus, evaluate your life and say, am I more unique and more different? Do I stick out more because I'm a Christian today than I did last year or I did five years ago? If I'm truly going to be a part of this thing called Christianity, why would you want to just fit in? Like, get in or get out. <laughs> That's what Peter's saying to the church. Buy into it wholesale. Be like Jesus. Or what worth does it have to your life? Ultimately, the call to the gospel is that we would be different. So this is going to be too long if I keep going that long on one point. But we got to go on. So, um... Let's go on. Um, the other thing about this first part, I got to harp on five and six, is it's not just that we're different, but we live for something else. Five and six reads about the judgment of the living and the dead. And six is kind of a, a unique passage when it talks about preaching to the dead, right? Preaching the gospel to the dead. Peter is not talking about some intermediary state. That when people die, they can come saved, by the way. Just a spoiler alert. You can go study it, but that's not what he's saying. And the NIV has an important word that my translation doesn't. It talks about the now dead. And in the Greek text, you'll see it's talking about the fact that the gospel was preached to those that once were living, but have now died. Have now died. He's talking about the previous Christians who have died. The reason for that is this. One of the major criticisms at this point in time from the culture was, well, if Christianity is so different, if you believe in a resurrection of the dead, why are all these Christians dying then? Why aren't they still living? If Jesus could rise from the dead and live on earth, why aren't Christians doing that? And he was countering that question. He was showing us as Christians that we live for something completely different. We don't live for the now. We live for heaven. We don't live for this world. We live for the world to come. And where others may say, well, you're no different. There's tons of bodies in these graveyards of Christians. Where do we see the fruit of your spiritual life? We have a faith and a hope and something to come that the world will never understand. We have to remember that. That as we deal with people, they're not going to understand that. They don't believe it. 
They don't believe in the afterlife, or if they do, it's some different version of the afterlife of the gospel. But Christ has called us to think different, to think about life to come. You've got problems today, amen? <laughs> the good news is those problems fade in the eternity with heaven. Those problems one day will be gone. And in the meantime, he reminds us that we have to live the way the Spirit of God does. So here's the cool news. If you want to think like Jesus, change your perspective from the now to eternity. Try to think about eternity. Because I'm going to tell you, like, you think about your life. Let me just break it down a little bit simpler. Think about your life today versus like 10 years from now and the things you were worried about 10 years ago. Some of those problems may still exist, but a lot of them have faded, right? Some of those problems 10 years ago, I mean, I, I go back to my world right now. Some of those problems, I used to think a single child was so hard to raise. Now I'm going, I got two of them, right? So like, you know, I look to old Bo and I go, well, that wasn't, that's kind of silly that I worried about that before. Because now I got to figure out how to juggle two. And some of you are like, yeah, I got three or four. Don't even talk to us, right? Like the problems of yesterday fade in the passage of time. Now put your problems of today in the scope of eternity. In the scope of heaven. In the scope, in the face of being with God. Where there's no more war. There's no more pain. There's no more sickness. There's no more need for money or resource. Or, you know, I, I do believe, we can talk about heaven another day. I believe we'll have activity and jobs. We're not just going to be floating on a cloud, singing our time away. We're going to have things to do. But there's no more need to grind in some job you don't enjoy just to make sure your bills are paid. You will fully be, meet your purpose when you meet your maker. And Peter is reminding the church, and I'm reminding you today, put your problems not in the scope of today, put them in the face of eternity. If you believe in Christ, eternity is all you got to worry about. Because the old song says, the things of this earth will grow dim, uh, sing it for me, greatly dim, right? I'm not singing it, so it's hard. In the light of his glory and grace, the things of this earth grow dim. In the light of eternity. Your problems today are not insignificant. That's not what I'm saying. But they will be overcome by eternity. Think about eternity. Think differently. And then ultimately what it helps you. And I've got to speed up. 12 through 19 is all about suffering. And I, I just want to point out a few things. It says in verse 13. You may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Because you share in Christ's sufferings. That God's glory as you share in sufferings is more greatly revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. So some of you want to be blessed today, right? You'll say amen to that all day long. Go get insulted for the name of Christ. Because then you'll be blessed. That's what scripture says, not me. So y'all can take it up with God. All right. Um, don't suffer as someone in wrongdoing, suffer as a Christian. Wouldn't you rather your life be painful because of your following Christ, not your own mistakes? Not your own human intelligence which screws up all the time, but instead the pain you can see is because you're a Christian and that's the only reason? When you suffer that way, you're blessed. Why does he talk so much about suffering? Well, here's the third thing about our thinking. We have to realize that we persevere through our trials Knowing that blessings ultimately are to come. If you want to change your thinking to be like Christ, whatever you're suffering through today, yes, put in the scope of heaven. But also realize that that suffering is ultimately going to bring great blessing for your life. 
So Psalm 119 crew is going to hear a little bit of what we had Wednesday because I did a pretty pitiful job. But Wednesday, Psalm 119, this is what we talked about. The, the author of that psalm um, was talking in our verses from Wednesday all about hope and the blessing of suffering. And I just want to read this for you because I thought it applied to this point so well. Verses 49 through 56 say this in Psalm 119. Remember the word of your ser- to your servant. Remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. The insolent utterly deride me, but I don't turn away from your law. When I think of your rules from old, I take comfort, O Lord. Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. This blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. The psalmist is talking about the blessing it is to know that God's promises are true no matter what you're going through. And we talked Wednesday night about the reality that as we walk through suffering, it is the only way to experience true hope. You ever wanted to have hope? Well, in order to have hope, you've got to go through something where you didn't have hope. Think about it. Like when life's good, like you're happy. You may be glad about your life, but there's no real need for hope. Take you to a worldwide situation, you know, right now in Ukraine, they need hope. Like, Christians there don't get to meet like this right now if you're in one of the cities that's under attack. Instead, you're in some bunker somewhere, you're locked down somewhere, and you are hoping and praying and pleading that God would protect you. That's hope. So today, we're happy, we're comfortable, we're glad to be in church, but hope comes in the midst of waiting. And the reason I say that is because some of you may not be in Ukraine going through that, but some of you are going through significant things. You're praying for a loved one who's sick, or perhaps you're sick today and you need healing. Perhaps you have broken relationships or broken families. Perhaps you don't know where the next paycheck's going to come from, or you're not sure how the bills are going to be paid. In the midst of that, waiting for God to come through. As you persevere, yes, for being a Christian, but you also persevere just through the normal things that this life brings. The only way we have hope is by thinking like Christ. That these sufferings are made for us so that we can receive the blessings. And I can have you all come up and give testimony today, right? On what God has done to bless your life. And you will talk time and time again. But I guarantee you, it's mostly going to be about where you saw God come through in the midst of the waiting. It's not going to be when the times were good. It's going to be when the times were bad and God came through. That's how we see and think like Jesus. Is we see our suffering as a method to get blessing from God and ultimately to connect with God. So you see now why I called it glorious suffering. Suffering is not fun. I don't wish it on any of you. But the reality is if we live like we're supposed to, we're probably going to experience some persecution, some suffering, some things that are not as, as great as we want them to. And the only way we overcome that is we know that it's glorious, that God has crafted that for our lives so that we might connect deeper to him. But then secondly, we also must love to earnestly love, to have earnest love. And ultimately, he says here in 7 through 11, not only do we suffer, but Christ came to lay down himself for others. And if you want to be like Jesus, if you want to think like Jesus, you ultimately lay down yourself and think of others. You've got to become selfless. 
So the first part, he talks about love. And the fact is, we must focus on our love more than others' sin. Let me say that again. If you want to think like Jesus, we must focus on our love more than other people's sin. Why do I say that? Well, I've been around the church a while, and and the one thing about Christians that I, I really think if we were looking to Jesus, we would tweak is the focus on everyone else's sin but our own. Well, the pastor of the church doesn't meet this standard. This person did this within the church. This person did this the wrong way. We will call each other out all day long. Or if you're a passive person, maybe you'll just lay back and not say anything, but you're just mad. It's a form of aggression, by the way. I call it passive aggressive, right? Like either way, if we're not careful, we will focus more on everyone else's problems, their sin, than we focus on our love. And this is preaching as someone who's highly critical, by the way. My wife knows that she lives with me. Like, I always see the way things could be better. And therefore, with everyone around me, I just want things to rise up. And if I'm not careful, there's no love in that. I miss love. So, give you back to my daughter. I can want her to be straight A's, but have no love in that if I'm not careful. Sure, I want her to achieve. But if I'm always looking at the way she doesn't achieve, there's not much love in that. Well, think about every relationship you've got. Within the church, without the church... If you focus on their problems versus their love, you're going to miss out on how Jesus was. Because I can go through a lot of Jesus' ministry, and we don't have time this morning. Let me just give you the one. He loves all of us, and we're among the people that said crucify him. He still saved us. And if you look to Scripture, if you look to the model, you're either one or two. You either brought him before the law as a religious person, or you're in the crowd saying crucify him. And he still loves you. And if that's our model, then ultimately we've got to learn to love even in the midst of other people's sin. We've got to learn to love a culture even amongst the sin. For some of us right now, we want to focus on politics no matter what side of the aisle. And Jesus didn't come to become king. Let me just make that clear this morning. Jesus told them he didn't come to become king. The Israelites wanted him to become king and overthrow Rome. Because it wasn't Jewish enough. It wasn't Christian enough. Jesus didn't come to become king. Sure, he changed things, but he did it through his love, his ministry. I'm not saying he didn't call out sin. I'm not saying he didn't talk about sin. I'm not asking you to sweep sin under the rug. But instead, are you leading with love? The woman at the well who had a number of people in her bedroom, he led with love. Most people wouldn't even talk with her. Think about it. And ultimately today, we've got to learn to lay down ourselves and love. Second thing he talks about is hospitality and grumbling. I'm not going to be able to park there. How many of you are hospitable people? You would open up your lives to others and allow them to see who you really are without complaining that you got to clean up the house to do it. Or you got to change your schedule a little bit. Hospitality will always require inconvenience, is what she mean, what the Peter means by grumbling. Hospitality, if you ever had somebody over, you know this. Hospitality always requires inconvenience. Some of you work in the hospitality injury, industry, you know what that means. You know what you deal with. And ultimately, to be like Jesus, we've got to be hospitable without grumbling. But lastly, in verses 9 through 12... He talks about, I mean, excuse me, 10 through 12. He talks about gifting and serving one another. And he's talking about the church. And if you want to learn how to earnestly love, 
Yes, you have to worry about your love versus sin, but you've also got to get involved in the church. Peter tells the church scattered abroad, this is not for unbelievers, this is for the gathered church, to, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's very grace, whoever speaks, like me today, speak as one who is an oracle of God, speaking for God. Whoever serves, you serve out of the strength that God supplies, not of your own strength. You do this so God may be glorified. The reason we around here ask you to get involved, but it's beyond just the things we do here. To be involved with each other, help one another, use your giftedness, and don't be selfish, and think about yourself with church. Instead, think about others. The reason we ask you this, and you'll hear it more and more throughout this year, is because it helps you think like Jesus. It's not because it grows some big building or big organization. That is not our goal. Our goal is that you get involved with something that has a common purpose. The common purpose here being the gospel. And you will ultimately change your life. So to give you an example as we close, I'll tell you a little another thing I'm proud of. You may have seen this if you're connected with me on Facebook. But my brother, he's a coach at a 1A high school. My dad is an assistant coach. My dad has been the assistant coach since I was in the first varsity team for this school. So I'm really proud because this is my alma mater, but it's also my brother. You get that? But I was on the first team, and my dad has sat on the bench beside my head coach all the way now through my brother, 30-something years. And they won the state championship last week. So I got a baby at home. I'm having to figure out how to get to Birmingham to be a part of this. Is what we were doing last week, all right? Because it's a once-in-a-lifetime thing. And as I think about teamwork, and I think about common purpose within the church, I can't help but think about that team, seeing what they did this year. My dad posted a couple of great articles on kids that were on the bench in that game who all year helped the team. One big guy was on the bench because they had a 6'10 guy on the team that was the senior, right? And this 6'4 kid didn't even get to play, and he's big, right? Like 6'4 is still big. But the kid helped in practice defense, beat that 6'10 kid up all year long so that he'd get better. There's a water boy on the team that ended up getting injured, a senior, couldn't play, ended up helping the team. There's another kid that's on the court in the final game that his only job was not to score a point. He didn't score a, I don't think he scored a point. His only job was to defend the best player on the opposite team. That's all he did. And he shut the guy down. The guy had two points, their best player. Shut him down. But his job, well, he's not the star. He's not the MVP. He didn't get an award on the tournament team. Instead, he just played his part, his role. And because that group of guys in the small 1A Christian school that doesn't have a chance to win a championship, because they all focused and all served and all bought in, they achieved something amazing. The church is at its best when everyone looks to their giftedness. And instead of pointing at the church and saying, I need you to do this, instead they say, how can I help you succeed? And that's really not me speaking as a pastor as much as a person there. Most of you are great with that. But I just want to ask you today, when's the last time, whether it be this church or if you're at church somewhere else, maybe you're visiting today, when's the last time you asked yourself, how can I help my church succeed? Because the reason I bring this up is not that Calvary would get any type bigger or better or whatever. It's not. It's first so that the gospel would be made known in New Orleans. That this city would be a little bit light, have more light than it does right now. It needs some light, amen? 
But secondly, if you want to think more like Jesus, if you want your thinking to grow, you've got to begin asking God, how have you gifted me to help my church? To be involved. This is even beyond like time, talent, treasures. It's all those things. It's not just giving. It's not just financially. Although we need your help there, it's not that. Some of you can do it by just asking, how can I help? What I love is yesterday, a group of men were up here for breakfast and they took time after breakfast in a Bible study to just pick up the campus. Construction debris just sitting around. On their Saturday, by the way, where they could be doing other things, they took time just to pick up. That's what they could do. I think about military men that have come throughout our church. I think of one example of a couple of men who for an Easter years ago, helped build a cross that was risen on this stage. And I saw both those men's life change just by that one act of service. They got involved in the church and Jesus changed their life just because they chose to serve. I can tell you story after story and I'm preaching to the choir for some of you because you've been here longer than I have. As you get involved, Peter says, as you use your gifts, ultimately we think like Christ. And as we think like Christ, there's two verses I want to leave you with as we close. As we think like Christ, verse 12. Everything in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, because to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then verse 19. Let the, therefore, let those who suffer accordingly to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That ultimately while we think like Christ, God gains glory. And in the midst of that, your soul gains peace. Something that you can't put a price on because it's connected to your faithful creator. It's connected to God. And in there becomes the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So I just want to encourage you. If you're struggling today, if you're going through something, if it's for the sake of Christ, it's not in vain. There's blessing down the road. Stick out. Be proud of your faith. I'm not asking you to be a jerk about it. That's not what Peter is calling us to. Just be proud of who you are. Be proud that you're a Christian. Look differently than everyone else. And then learn to love one another more. If you don't know names in this room, you need to know them. If you aren't involved, perhaps you get involved more. I'm telling you, if you will do this, God gets glory and ultimately we gain peace. Let's pray together. God, I thank you so much for your word. God, I thank you for all the things you put in this text. And God, I just pray that as we process what we've just heard, we will become more like Jesus. We'll learn to gloriously suffer for his sake and we'll be earnest in our love, pure and selfless. And God, for every person in this room today, I, I just pray that if they don't know Christ, perhaps today they'll step out and talk with one of our staff, our pastors, someone after church and express that they'd like to know you in a real way. 
God, for those that know Christ, that are Christians, who Peter is talking to in this text, I pray that they would stick out like a sore thumb in this culture, that they would be different. And God, when they are different, God, you would give them the strength to endure whatever comes their way. And that this church would be known by our love. I thank you for the unity in this room, the spirit in which these people have. And I pray you'd go before us and continue to help us love one another in an amazing way. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for letting me spend some time. It's, it's not a quick text by any means, but I hope it blessed your life today. If you do have questions, our staff um, is around after church. Pastor Michael and I will be greeting people. Come up to us. We'd love to talk with you. We'd love to encourage you to help you as best we can. If you don't know Jesus, we'd love to point you to him. And what I love, and I, I know out of a, a, a sermon on serving, obviously, there may be some questions. What I love is what's coming. In this season, as we're getting ready, it's the Lenten season, you know, around here in New Orleans. Well, we're getting ready for Easter. And there's stuff coming online, such as introduction to Calvary classes that have been offline for a while that will help you plug in if you've never done that before. There's activities and events you've gotten through a family calendar for your, your kids and your children that are going to help your family plug into this church. And if you need places to serve, you're always willing to ask the staff. But I'd ask you to lead in this way. How can I help you? How can I help you accomplish what we're doing this year? And we're going to see more and more life as things go on. Just as our campus has been unified, now it's time to fill this thing up with people to hear about Jesus. And that's what I love. And we do all that, by the way, through your giving. So as you leave today, don't forget to be faithful in your tithes and your offering. It helps us move forward. All this stuff you see, including hurricanes and deductibles and all that thing, you guys are graciously coming through. And we need you to continue to come through and be, great, be uh, faithful in that. And what I know is God always blesses us in our finances when we're faithful with that. Sometimes you may not know how, but he does that as we're faithful to give. So those are all ways. We talk about time, talent, and treasures. Those are all ways in which we can practice our love for our church and be involved here together. And as we do that, we think like Christ. So another way we do that as we focus our hearts is through our singing. And so what we've been designing for you, and I don't want you to miss it at the end of every service, is a chance as we leave to connect with Christ, to spend one last moment thinking about the message and singing to him. So don't jet out. Take a moment before we leave. It's really like four minutes. It's not long. Just to engage with Christ. And I promise you, you're going to be blessed as you go throughout your Sunday afternoon.